0: If ads give you a pain in the nads, or the nadettes, join us now on our new subscription model on Apple. It's all ad-free.
1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news...
0: You have to understand human nature.
3: This podcast is powered by Acast.
0: Podcast time and this podcast is coming to you from Gothenburg on the west coast of Sweden where I am given a speech. Well, I've actually just given a speech. How are you, Johnny?
3: I am great. Uh, I'm stuck here in Dublin, but hey-ho. That's the way well, it goes.
0: You'd love it out here. You'd love
3: it out here. Except I know. I, I've uh, I've a punch on for for the Scandies
0: uh, here. No, but it's 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 a funny place. But you know, you would drop the GDP of a small African nation at lunchtime here. Oh, it is so expensive. What's, what's I mean? the price
3: of a pint? Well, that's always a good gauge. It's
0: it's, it's a tenor and change. I mean, it's really really expensive. Yeah. I just went. I all, I went full IKEA at lunchtime just now, right, with meatballs, right? You know, they all love meatballs and sort of kind of mashed potatoes and a glass of wine, and you just don't even do the exchange rate. You know, you just you put the credit card in and you say, okay, fine. (laughs) But it's a beautiful, beautiful city, incredibly sort of statuesque. It's been a huge power. I went to the museum here yesterday, and I didn't realize, John, that one of the biggest companies in Sweden – years ago was the Swedish East India Company that they were trading all around the world for centuries and centuries. And the Swedes were this big, big imperial power. And then remember we did the the thing on the census? Yeah. When they actually realized that they thought there was about 4 million of them. There was actually 1 million of them. And they decided they didn't have the manpower (laughs) to fight Russia anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they were very much uh, involved in the great battles against the Russians, Peter the Great, all that sort of stuff. The Swedes were involved in those battles because they were very much the dominant, dominant, dominant power in this part of the world. So the
3: the Museum of Gothenburg, which I was yesterday's fascinating thing. But can I ask you how many East India Companies were there? Because there was the British East India Company, the Dutch. Though I think there was three. There was the Dutch, the Swedes, and the Brits.
0: Now, yeah. if you want to get Listeners that are interested in the history of the East India Companies, there is a fantastic book, a fantastic book by a guy called William Dalrymple. And it's just called The Anarchy. And it's the <laughs> history of the British East India Company. Now, the Brits, it's an extraordinary thing because the Brits never really took over India as a colonial project. They basically armed a commercial company. So can you imagine Google with five tank divisions? That's exactly <laughs> yeah. and nuclear warheads. That's what the East India Company was. And they went to the, to it was they went around the backside of India and they took them over from Calcutta. And that's what the Brits did under a fellow called Clive. And it was just wholesale looting. Yeah. On an extraordinary level. Whereas the Dutch had a different idea. Their idea was they were going to bring spices. From Indonesia, but of course, when the Indonesians decide to get uppity, what do the Dutch do? They took them over and turned into a colony as well, yeah, so there was no there were no beauties in this beauty parade, but what is interesting in this part of the world is you get this maritime sense of an outward looking population, and I'll tell you, I was doing some research last night, John, ahead of this speech I was given, and yeah. the speech one of the parts of the speech was on the similarities between 1922 and now and the idea was to try and put the what's happening in Ukraine and the world into some sort of context and I'm looking at 1922 Ezra Pound the great American poet yeah. said that 1922 was the year the modern world begun. and what he was trying to say was that the 20th century actually began in 1922 so everything that went up before that was basically a legacy of the last century, right? So the First World War was still very much a battle between the French Empire, the German Empire, the British Empire, the Russian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, and the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. So it was like a battle of the 19th century, right? So it wasn't really a novel thing. It was an ancient thing. And what he was saying is that you've got to start in 1922 when all these empires collapse, when there's modernism, when there's Picasso and Joyce and Freud and Einstein and all this stuff. That's the year the 20th century began, right? Yeah. And I'm trying to put it into context that maybe this is the year the 21st century begins, that what went before this, so for example, was the era of naivety from, let's say, 1990, when the Berlin Wall collapses to now was a great era of naivety in the sense that we all believed that globalization would lift all the boats, that the notion that you would have a revanchist Russia was regarded as an anathema, uh, that technologically we would change, we'd all come
3: together, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It was like the brave new world in, in that state. Precisely. And yeah, it, was yeah, all, yeah.
0: it was all a result of the Soviet Union collapses, China opens up, India opens up, and we have this one overarching philosophy of markets and trade, and et cetera. And then of course, the battle in Donbass today tells us that that is really a silly interpretation of history. So what I was trying to say was that maybe this year is the beginning of a new chapter in history. But in order to actually give this speech, I wanted to see what was happening in Scandinavia in 1922. Right, so in 1922 yeah. in Ireland, we have the free state comes into being. We have yeah. a civil war. We have yeah. mass murder. We have your grandfather having to go at my grandfather yeah, on the yeah, side, yeah. right? Okay, <laughs> you have the creation of the Soviet Union after an extraordinary civil war. You have the end of the Ottoman Empire. You have, in Turkey, you have the expulsion of two million Greek people, right? Extraordinary ethnic cleansing all over the Balkans. You have the Austrian-Hungarian Empire collapses along with Ottoman, all that stuff, right? Yeah. So I said, what was happening here in Sweden? Of course, nothing. They were totally insulated, right? The Swedes. Yeah. And what they were actually doing, the only big political event that I could find here was a plebiscite on prohibition. Okay, Coming from the United States, you know, the prohibition movement in the United yeah. States. They're and
3: complaining about the price of the beer.
0: Prices, exactly as we started. Exactly yeah, as yeah. we started, right? <laughs> I don't blame them. Exactly. And so what they were doing, was the prohibition was a vote, obviously, on whether you should ban alcohol? And what was really fascinating for me, because I was in Gothenburg, was to try and drill down. The beauty is the beauty of Wikipedia, actually, drilling down <laughs> into that event and seeing what parts of Sweden voted most for prohibition and what parts of Sweden voted most against prohibition. Right. And okay. The ultimate, the ultimate election was fifty-one forty-nine against prohibition. So they didn't ban booze. But right. When you drill down deeply, what you see is that this area, Gottenberg, voted over 75% against banning booze, whereas on average, it was much more 50-50. So what you find here is that's a really indicative of... Well, why was that? Because the culture is different here, right? So what you have in all port cities, now, whether it's Bombay or Shanghai or Dublin or London, or any place Marseille, in the port, yeah, yeah. is you've got the interaction of all sorts of people, right? The port cities tend to be, by definition, liberal, tolerant, live and let live. They've more shit going on. There's more immigrants coming in. So what you tend to have as a society that really says, you know what, if people want to booze, let them booze. Whereas the parts of Sweden that voted profoundly for prohibition were the north and the centre of Sweden, which were much more Lutheran, much more Swedish in ethnicity, yeah, much yeah. less likely to have outside influences, and as a result, much less tolerant. So I always think that the, one of the interesting things is, you know, when you're looking at statistics, yeah, do GDP and wages and yada yada yada, but actually drill down into unusual statistics because they reveal much more about the people
3: yeah, that you sure, don't yeah.
0: actually you don't actually see. So uh, on my odyssey, I'm on an odyssey. I'm going to Turkey from here, John. I'm on an odyssey around the world, right?
3: I don't think you're ever going to come home. Jeez, I would love that. Man, (laughs) I would love that.
0: We started our odyssey in Inishman. We go to Gothenburg. We end in Istanbul. And then we've got to come home.
3: Do you know, there's actually an amazing walk, apparently, that starts in Dingle in the west of Ireland, southwest Ireland, and ends up in Istanbul. Uh, I can't remember the name of it now, but a it's a very swimmy walk. Well, there's there's a there's a few boats involved in fairness, but it's about four thousand kilometers long. And it's one of those ones that's on my list, but I don't think I'll ever get to do it. Yeah,
0: yeah. How's the heel? You wouldn't have to hear plantar fasciitis with that sort of walking. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
3: <laughs> so what are some of these odd statistics that you've been looking up, delving into, delving into, unearthing. Unearthing. Well, I mean,
0: this is the whole idea. So I suppose, John, the interesting thing for me always has been the statistics. I've always told you that the most civilized countries are the countries with the best statistics, right? That yeah. measure things that actually give you a day-to-day record. It's, it's almost like a testimony of what's going on on the ground. So in 1922, I thought the best statistic, of course, was who voted for Prohibition and how, when you drill down various different parts of Sweden, voted differently. Now, John, now I have some fantastic little statistics on Sweden. (laughs) The first one, of course, is the buzz in VC and internet startup companies, right? In Sweden, you've got Skype or in Scandinavia, right, where a lot of the stuff comes out of Sweden, but it's it's all over Scandinavia. Spotify, Klarna, Skype, Zettel, iZettel. These are huge, huge unicorn companies that these guys seem to be miles ahead of. You know, Stockholm is really the top 10 cities in the world with the number of startups. It's ranking, it's I mean, it's it's these guys have really, really taken to technology. And one of the reasons they claim this is the case is that in the 1980s and early 90s, John, yeah, Ericsson, the large Swedish industrial producer, which produced computers as well as everything else, mm. gave free. Think about this. Well, it was paid by the Swedish state, free to the to the user, a laptop in every single Swedish home. Really? Okay? Yes. And as a result of this, you have a level of technological ability. You have a level of cyber understanding. You have a level of internet savviness in this part of the world because you've let now three generations or at least two
3: generations who have been online. That's be, incredible. I mean, was was there any sort of government subsidy in that? Absolutely, yeah. The government yeah. said, look, this is the way of the world.
0: This is right. the way we're going. And we're just going to give everyone, and it's interesting, they didn't demand anyone do exams or anything. They just said, here in the corner beside the telly is a yoke called a laptop. Work it if you want.
3: Yeah. And of course, yeah.
0: what you find is, do you remember the open source code writing, sort of almost free base yes. Competition to Microsoft was yeah, Linux.
3: Linux, or somebody, yeah. and that
0: all comes from up around here. It's all comes from Scandinavia, from Finland and Sweden. So they're, you know, they're miles ahead in various things. And of course, what you see now is, in terms of internet startups, there's a very, very vibrant ecosystem here.
3: But yeah, that's what I I saw that as well in in Norway when I was there, what six months ago or whatever. There was a big startup, particularly in the energy market, big startup scene there. Yeah, and
0: it's just that, they, you know, it's an extraordinary thing. But another statistic I read the other day was 40% of Swedes, this is a really interesting statistic, feel safe walking alone in the dark. 40.3% of Swedes, vis a vis 27%, the EU average, and a country like Lithuania, where only 9% of people feel safe. Mm, and Jesus. That's a statistic that tells you something enormous about yeah. trusting the society, about how the society operates. About how people deal with each other, you know, you know, four out of ten people feel really safe, which is extraordinary. Only thirteen percent of the population have reported any crime, any violence, or any vandalism in their area, which is again. What you're it's, that's about- incredible,
3: and and actually, you know, and that again, you know, comparing to to Norway, trust was a massive part of Norwegian culture, but obviously the Scandinavian culture in general.
0: Yeah, no, no, trust in course. their
3: institutions, trust in each other, trust in walking a dark street at night.
0: Well, imagine now what trust does to business, right? Because if you have very, very strong levels of trust in society, the cost of doing business collapses right? Because most of the problems in business are people welching on deals, are many of the problems in business. And that normally in the past, John, was reflected in the rate of interest. So if you didn't trust somebody, you actually charged a higher rate of interest when you were lending to them. If you didn't trust somebody, you employed more lawyers to kind of lawyer up the contracts. If you didn't trust people, you didn't give them any sort of sense of autonomy and how they worked. But if you have trust in the system, the cost of business collapses, the cost of money collapses, the cost of lawyers collapses because you don't need them, and ultimately the cost of going to court collapses. So there's a whole add-on for a society that begins to actually trust each other. And that comes from somewhere very, very deep. I'll give you another extraordinary statistic, right? These people, the trust in their legal system is 6.7 out of ten vis a 4.5 out of 10 in the EU average. They only work 30 hours per week, and they do that willingly. Remember, the French had to actually impose 30 hours a week. These mm-hmm. people do it willingly, and yet they have much higher wages. We're going to talk to Martin Sambu in a minute as to why that is. But lastly, John, lastly, you know who was born in Gothenburg? Bjorn of Abba. Okay. <laughs> these are the statistics I come out with. But if you look at amazing you think about the exports from Sweden you think like Volvo and ABB and all these things you always think about, right? Yeah.
3: Music is Idea one of the biggest stuff.
0: music is one of their biggest exports. ABBA, Alcazar, Rosetta, Avicii, the Swedish house mafia, Robin, all these are huge huge sellers around the world. And they're really into electro music and electro pop and into techno. And I mean, so you have something really vibrant going on here. Yeah. You know, there's 5,500 are registered in this country as musicians, singers and composers. And really? 1.7 billion is the size of the recorded music revenue per year in Sweden. So,
3: And are they supported by like an arts council, the Swedish Arts Council and stuff for...
0: They probably are, but also what they do have, John, is because they speak their own language, right, is they have a captive audience. So this is one of the problems with Irish artists. On the one hand, speaking English means you can amplify your voice out but it yes, also means yeah. that you're actually competing with the big UK musicians and, of course, the big American musicians, right? Yeah, yeah, Whereas here, it's like a bit like the French movie industry or the Italian movie industry. Because you have your own language and culture, you will always have a certain proportion of Swedes who want to listen to music in Swedish. Yeah. And therefore, yeah, yeah. you have that capital. In fact, there's a very interesting discussion going on right now in terms of music, John, between Irish artists and the Irish radio. Irish radio plays a very, very small amount of Irish music these days.
3: Uh, this, this is an ongoing thing yeah, for, it is an for ongoing many years. Thing. Yeah.
0: So let us leave the bizarre statistics. We've given you the statistics. Let's go as to why this is happening. Why does Scandinavia yes, exactly. seem to do things so well? I'm going to go now, we're going to go and talk to Martin Sambu of the FT, Norwegian Economist, to figure out what the hell is actually going on here. Martin Sandbuke, great to see you. Explain to to me why you Scandinavians get so many things
1: right. Look, there are some things that are different between the Scandinavian countries, some things that are in common, and and a lot of the factors behind the economic success story are really in common. You know, people think about Scandinavia and they start by thinking about the welfare state. I don't think that's the right place to start. I want to start somewhere much more mundane, which is how do you wash your car? Oh, I like this. Go on. Tell us. If you're a car owner, uh, you know, you need to watch it. For some, it's a pleasure. For other, it's a chore. Um, but unless you're going to watch it yourself, either you go and you pay somebody to watch it for you, and that tends to be, you know, tends to be young men, immigrant men often with wet rags, or it's a big machine with big blue roller brushes. When, when I was growing up in Scandinavia in the 80s, that was the only option. You know, you went to a service station and it would be one of these quite exciting machines for an 8 year old you know. You would stay in it, and you'd see these big. Martin, that was, go when away. I
0: was a kid. That was the most exciting thing, and I used to ask my mum to try and find a garage that had that thing, and and you'd sit there, and it was like Doctor Who. It was like the future. It was, it was the amazing, future was right? there.
1: Absolutely. When I moved to the US in the 2000s, I noticed that whenever I had to get a car cleaned, it would be immigrant men, often didn't speak any English, clearly very low pay. Uh, You know, two or three of them would descend on your car with water and rags and soap and and do the whole thing by hand. Now, why is it? These are two different technologies for doing the same thing. You use a machine or you use people. And I actually think that difference is key to understanding the Scandinavian model. Explain that. Explain that to me. So why do some countries, why in some countries do you see one technology being used and in other countries uh, another technology being used? I mean, it's quite, the answer is kind of obvious when you think about it. It's because of the cost of labor. So in Scandinavia in the 80s, uh, labor was just too expensive. You you know, this pretty egalitarian. So most people are paid, you know, within limits, more or less the same thing. So it costs you quite a lot to pay somebody else to actually wash your car for you. Machines, in comparison, are, are relatively cheap. So for a service station owner, you look, should I hire two, three people to wash cars and pay high wages, or should I invest in a machine? And people invested in the machine. Conversely, in a country that has a lot of cheap labor, like, and allows- Like the United the States, for example. Like the United States. In the 2000s, it's kind of important when we're talking about, the same service station owner is gonna say, well, I can invest in this machine, take out a loan, and so on. Or I can just hire a bunch of people who've just arrived, you know, I'll pay them minimum wage if I'm a nice guy, less than that uh, if I'm not. And I'll make more, and more money that way. But what you see is that, of course, in terms of productivity, the machine is more productive in terms of cars washed per labor hour put in. So the egalitarianism of the Scandinavians actually leads to more productivity because it encourages investment in capital, capital substitution, if you like, automation. We talk about automation as this sort of ghost specter that we need to be worried about. But automation is why you get high productivity. And high wages at the lower end is the way you create incentives for businesses to invest in machinery. That is really a big part of the Scandinavian story. Now, why were wages have wages been high at the low end in Scandinavia? That has to do with institutional history. You were talking about the year 1922 start, as the start of the 21st century, the 20th century. Yes. In all three Scandinavian countries in the late 20s, early 30s, there was a move to a tripartite organization of wage bargaining. Um, So this happened before the Second World War. And in all three, you started instituting this collaborative system between employers, employee unions, uh, and the government at least to mediate or, or create a supporting environment. And that's, you know, in various forms has been there since then.
0: And Actually, amp- we just that we had a thing like that in Ireland called social partnership, which was this basic idea of corporatism that unions yeah. and the yeah. companies and the state would sit down. they say, "Look, we can probably afford a three or four percent wage increase this year across the board." There'll be various different iterations for various industries, but in general, we will move up together. So we had the same thing in Ireland. This sort of social partnership. So, so you you put this in place a long, long time ago in Scandinavia. <laughs>
1: Exactly. In the late 20s, early 30s, this was established and it stayed in place and it works very well. The effect is that you have compressed wage distribution. So the lower wages are higher than they would be otherwise. The higher ones are a bit lower than they would be otherwise. And what does that do to a business owner? It creates an incentive to try to make do without low paid, low productive labor and instead have machines do those things. And it, of course, incentivizes you to hire more skilled workers because that's kind of cheaper than it would otherwise be. So relative to an uncoordinated system, that's the incentive you get. And of course, high-skilled labor together with machinery, that's a good recipe, right? You, you get more productive work that way. Now, that's only part of the story, but it's the essential part of the story. And it kind of, we need to get rid of this idea that there's some tension between some degree of egalitarianism and productivity. What the Nordics prove is that egalitarianism can contribute to higher productivity. Well, This so is kind a of key fascinating, insight, this think, is fascinating Martin, yeah.
0: because for many people listening, particularly in Ireland, we speak the English language. We are much more invaded by, are open to Anglo-Saxon ideas of how the country and economics works. And one of the sort of mantras is this notion that a country cannot grow without what they call a flexible labor market, which ultimately means some people getting paid piss-poor wages, actually that's what it actually means, right? And that the idea that if wages are low, then profits are high, and then those companies become much more innovative because of the profit incentive, and they drag up the low wages. What you're saying is, no, 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 it works the opposite. That the Scandinavians prove a different thing. What do they prove? So,
1: I said egalitarianism, can be a contributor to productivity. Now, it's not egalitarianism because of redistribution. This is another thing people sometimes misunderstand about the Scandinavian countries. They are egalitarian economies, it's very true. But the astonishing thing is how egalitarian they are before redistribution. So before taxes and transfers and subsidies and so on, and benefits, it's the market itself Creates a reasonably egalitarian wage distribution. And that's because that's happened because of this tripartite institutional organization of the labor market. Uh, But the effect is that there's actually less work for redistribution to do. That doesn't mean the state doesn't have a lot to do. But in terms of just taking from the rich and giving to the poor, the differences are smaller to begin with. So it's equality in the market rewards itself is a, as an incentive to invest in a way that makes things more productive. But let me say one other thing, because you, you contrast this with a flexible labor market. Now, let's think about how we define flexibility. What is flexibility? If I ask you, which are the countries in Europe, namely the two countries in Europe that have the highest rate of job-to-job moves, highest churn in the labor market, if you like, the rate of employees going from one job to a next in a quarter in a year.
0: Well, I'm, I I I I presume you're going to unveil Scandinavians. I am, isn't it? Yeah. I would expect a country like Ireland would probably have quite high churn of jobs. So it's Denmark and Sweden. Denmark and Sweden. So traditionally, the like for example, the Brits would always say, "Well, we must have a much higher churn because we have this." Like so, Denmark and Sweden people change jobs more often.
1: Yes. Wow. Denmark and Sweden have the highest rate of job to job moves in. I don't know if it's the EU or in in Europe it would have been it would have been included in the UK because back in the back when these statistics were drawn up the, that was before Brexit so Sweden and Denmark have the highest rate of job market churn that seems to also contribute to productivity why because it's a sort of flexibility that allows people to move from a good job or some job to a better job, yes. presumably, where they get paid more. So churn can also be good. So it depends what sort of flexibility you have. It'd be wrong to say that the Scandinavian labour markets are not flexible. They have quite a high rate of job protection, a high degree of job protection. But they're flexible in the sense that people yeah, move that, about a lot.
0: Well, it's very interesting you just talk about the, the role of state and the redistribution. Because in Ireland, and for our Irish listeners, the Irish state works hardest in the EU to rebalance. So we tax more, we give out more. But what you're saying is the state doesn't need to be overburdened to such an extent. The reason the Irish state actually redistributes more is because the original market outcomes are so unequal.
1: And that's a danger. I think you can run up to the, it's not that redistribution doesn't matter, but you run up against the limit economic because the incentives get wrong with very high marginal tax rates and and political because you don't have the support for it necessarily. In any case, you won't get to where you want to be if you have too much inequality before redistribution. Now, there are other things the state has to do that are important if you want to kind of think about the secret source of Scandinavia. One thing is to have a highly skilled population. So these countries are also the ones that spend the most on education in terms of public funding. So that any company that wants to upgrade knows that there's a big pool of skilled labor out there. It needs to ensure that there's enough demand in the economy that when bad jobs, low productivity jobs disappear because you replace your car washers with a machine, then there will be enough other jobs. So you need to have a fairly high rate of of demand management and of of demand stimulus when that is necessary. So these things are, are very important, and you need a package of all of them. But at the core of it is this idea that it's a good thing for productivity, for business productivity, for the lowest wages to be driven up. Now, there's a bit of a postscript to my story about the car wash, or a a prequel and a sequel, if you like.
0: By the way, this is, this is a fascinating discussion. It's also based on chapter six of Martin's book, The Economics of Belonging, which is a fantastic read if you want to understand basically what is happening in terms of political movements, in terms of social movements, I'm trying to get your head around why the economy isn't delivering for enough people to allow people to remain secure in their jobs, secure in their countries and not lurch to the extremes of right and left So the economics of belonging. And I think it's out in paperback very soon, paperback quite soon. That's Mark. right. Yeah. And chapter six starts with this notion of the car wash and taking the car wash as a microcosm of explaining Scandinavia.
1: So let's go forward. Go on. Allow me to say one more thing about the car wash example, because there's a sort of prequel and a sequel. When was the automatic car wash invented? In the US, In back in the 40s. And in the 50s, that would be the, the sort of uh, of service that, that was spreading. But by the time I went to the US in the 2000s, that was much less common, right? It was being replaced by immigrant labor, low wage, low productivity labor. Similarly, in Norway, when I go back to Norway now, for the last decade or two, I've started to see hand car washers again, often immigrant men, probably underpaid with labor laws not enforced. You wash your car by hand and, gee, you get a very cheap car wash because of that. But so you see, both countries have moved in different directions. So when we're talking about matters here, and I would put this down to how back in the 40s and 50s, you had a more egalitarian market wage distribution in the US. So there were incentives for automation. Those incentives disappeared as inequality increased. In Scandinavia, well, you've had quite a bit of immigration from poorer countries. It's not that the immigration itself drives down wages, I don't think, but if it circumvents the system that's already in place, if labor agreements are not enforced, or there are people who are just not included because they're not part of the union because they haven't grown up there, then this system starts to creak a little bit. So there are challenges to the Scandinavian model today.
0: But can I just, before I ask you about the challenges, uh, it's interesting you talk about productivity and high wages because... Many, many scholars are trying to explain over the years, I have been trying to explain why the Industrial Revolution started in England. Right? Why in England, and in particular, why in the north of England did you get this extraordinary increase in productivity? And one of the most plausible reasons is because English wages were already, already double French wages in the late 18th century so by the time you start to get you know, the spinning jenny and the steam and all this sort of thing these are all a function of the fact that england was potentially hyper uncompetitive in a globalized world and what the english responded to the english entrepreneurs and the english system said responded was by investing enormous amounts of energy and intellectualism and and, and raw entrepreneurial talent into creating automated car washes from the 18th century, right? So all their innovation wasn't a function of the fact that labor was cheap, as many many right-wing commentators were saying. that Labor was cheap in England, and that actually kick-started the industrial revolution. It was the, actually the opposite, that labor was expensive in England. And as a consequence, they had to come up with these machines that made England much more competitive. And this is, again, to your story. It suggests that there's a, there's a continuum there. Can I ask you about... The challenge. Debbie, now. can I just yeah, insert that
1: this this is completely conventional economics, right? You don't have to be an ideologue about this. If the relative price of capital to labor is low, which is the flip side of labor being expensive, well, then that's an incentive to invest more in capital. Yeah, right? it's as simple as that. Exactly, but it's funny how ideologues and
0: fundamentalists have taken basic economics, skewed it around, and used what seems logical to people who maybe haven't studied economics as a battering ram to actually take away labor legislation, take away protection, etc., etc. And that is most gloriously evident in the right wing in the United States, which is very, very popular at the moment. Speaking of the right wing, speaking of the challenges, speaking of maybe the atrophying of this social consensus, Sweden is looking down the barrel of an election. the coming months and the right wing are quite quite powerful here what do you think is happening on the ground in scandinavia to explain political forces that we're seeing
1: look i think actually scandinavia is quite similar to many other western countries in this regard and this is another message i try to communicate in the book if you really look at it there is this whole debate about whether right-wing populism is due to culture and values or is it due to economics, I think is really down to the economics. You see this in Scandinavia and in other countries. It's been in times of difficult economic change like in the 80s that these populist movements have, have grown. The Sweden Democrats were nowhere 20 years ago, but after the global financial crisis and some reforms that left some people on the outside of the labor market, people sort of marginally attached, suffered more. That's when you saw a rise in the Sweden Democrats' support, the far-right party there. And so even though Scandinavia has managed these things better than most other countries, which is why I would say that on the whole, these movements are less dangerous there than in many other countries, they are still subject to the same global forces. And those global forces largely have to do with automation, technological progress, that means that we're no longer industrial societies, we are service economies. So we just don't need that many hands in factories anymore. That has very much changed the opportunities for different types of people. That's true everywhere. Uh, and I think that is really at the root of the this political backlash against liberal democracy.
0: I want to ask you just one last question before we go, Mart. which was, as a result of Brexit, To the extent that there is a thinking class in Ireland, what I mean a thinking class, a policy thinking class, think about these big things, we sometimes don't necessarily have that. And we don't really have a vibrant think tank infrastructure. But people were saying that the long-term alliances of a small country like Ireland in Europe would probably be an alliance with the Scandi's that Brexit's gone, so the Brits are gone. They were always our, sort of, our enemy and our allies in, in many, many ways. Like, enemy in terms of your cultural stance, but actually in practical day-to-day workings in the EU, we were very, very close to the British, right? They're now gone. So Ireland has to figure out, well, are we closer to the Latins? Are we closer to the Germans? Or who do we naturally bed down with? And there's this sense that ourselves, Netherlands, and the Scandies are more philosophically aligned Do you see something like that emerging in Europe, where Europe actually splits into sort of blocks? I'm I'm talking about ex-Ukraine, before Ukraine happened and maybe after Ukraine, that the blocks would be more philosophically aligned, sort of almost like a post-Viking alliance of
1: uh, this neck of the woods. So look, David, I've seen flashes of that. There was, uh, you know, something called the New Hanseatic League of northern countries, including the Baltics and, and other small countries, uh, there 's a group of so called like minded nations uh, that 's also the northern small ones largely, uh, but it seems to me that these are these have ended up being ad hoc ad hoc alliances um, so i don 't really see and i 'm a bit surprised by it don 't really see a sort of unified philosophical uh, block, even the Scandinavian countries well Norway is not in the EU but uh, Sweden and Denmark are, so is Finland, Nordic, but not a Scandinavian country. Even they, although they have very similar preferences on many things, um, are not really acting as a block. They talk to each other, they, they coordinate a bit, but they don't act as a block. So if even they don't manage to do it, it's not clear to me that a bigger one uh, would. I think it would be a good idea. But maybe what that reflects is that when you go down the list of things that have to be decided in the EU, you know, maybe actually there's less similarity or the similar. The, the alliances aren't always in the same place. Absolutely. I think that, that's, a, that's a thought it's worth considering. Just before
0: you go, the only conversation I'm having here is about NATO. Everyone's talking about NATO, 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 NATO. Where do you think things will go? I mean, I'm getting the sense that clearly Finland will join as quickly as tomorrow if they could. Uh, Swedes are slightly dragging their heels a little more uh, equivocal, but ultimately, what's your sense?
1: I was in Helsinki very recently. I think it's a foregone conclusion that Finland will apply, and I think they might have applied before this show goes on air. Uh, Sweden is more cautious. It's a longer step for them. They have a longer tradition of neutrality. They have—they uh, don't have the same immediate neighboring threat that Finland feels. Remember, Finland was at war with the Soviet Union uh, back in the 40s, Um but I also think that they're going to join. I think uh, the process has now already gone much further than anyone would have expected just a few months ago. Uh, I think there's a there's a process that has to be, has to happen. People have to process this. But already the choreography is clear. Already, it seems that it would be difficult once they've started down this this reflection, to say, "Well, no, actually we'll keep things the way they were." Keeping things the way they were seems impossible now. There aren't really any good alternatives, especially if Finland joins. Sweden would feel very lonely. Uh, And of course, they'll be welcomed with, with open arms. So my bet is that we'll see both countries apply very, very soon. And then we'll be waiting for Ireland.
0: Well, that's an interesting question. We might come back to that as always, Martin. Pleasure, and we'll talk to you very soon.
1: Good to be with you.
3: Ooh, NATO, eh? That's kind of interesting. Can you see us? Can you see Ireland following suit? Well, you know, I've always thought that
0: our neutrality was an exercise in virtue signaling. And I've always believed that you have to make choices. In You know, at times of crisis, you have to say, okay, what side are you on? It's been very easy for us for years and years to say we're neutral and we don't get involved. And it, it's a sort of a, I've always sensed there's a high moral ground, you know, where we don't get involved mm. in those sort of wars. So we can look down our nose at everybody and assume that we would act differently because we know the Brits and maybe even the Scandinavians will actually protect
3: us. Uh, well, we militarily. play a huge role in peacekeeping.
0: But so does which everyone else, really So of the Swedes, sort of the Norwegians, sort of the Finns. I mean, all these countries also pay, play a huge role. So the Spaniards, so even, right. you know, loads of countries play a big role in peacekeeping. I think, you know, it's... My sense is that what Martin Sambu is saying is what a lot of Europeans are probably saying, John, which is, you know, where do you guys actually stand? Really? Yeah, I'm sure, because they're thinking, man, you know, this is a... You assume that, or we're they're gonna, thinking,
3: "What the hell have you got to offer?"
0: But <laughs> they're probably thinking, "You know what? You're assuming that our that we'll fight for you guys. So it's the yeah. ultimate free ride, and well, that's not, only, true. That's not true. not only that free ride, but while free riding, you're looking down the nose the rest of us who have to make hard choices about what do we actually do, what side are we on, do we deploy troops and whatever. So, I mean, I've always felt in terms of neutrality that you can have what I would call passive neutrality. And active neutrality. So, give you an example from this neck of the woods. In the Cold War, the Finns actively used their neutrality, deployed their neutrality, and became a sort of a safe house for discussions. So, you had lots and lots of Finland would say, "We're neutral." Soviet Union and America, if you want to discuss things, discuss them here. We'll use our neutrality in an yep. active yep. way. Yep. Yeah,
3: Do you yeah. remember
0: in the in the you know in the ill fated Palestinian Israeli peace agreements? they were called the Oslo Accord because yes. the, the Norwegians, although in NATO, said we're neutral in terms of politics, so you can use our place. In terms of Iceland, years ago I was in Iceland at the location of the salt talks between Gorbachev and Reagan. And it's a really funny hut in Reykjavik. It's really in, incongruous. Mm-hmm. But that's where the you know things are. So I think that neutrality, if you use it very actively and you say that we're going to deploy our neutrality and we're going to allow people space to discuss things and to talk. Then it's, I think, work, works very well. Our sort of neutrality—I don't know—I'm not—I'm not sure. I, I, I'm not, I haven't made my mind up on this one
3: yet. What about you? I'm not sure. I—I I, I understand the free ride element of it, but I do think that we play an enormous role in peacekeeping, and we're actually very good at it. But but
0: being neutral, being part of NATO doesn't preclude you from peacekeeping. That's what I'm saying. I mean, the- no,
3: I know. But but if we just stuck to the peacekeeping and stayed out of the yeah,
0: no, I take your point. The problem with the peacekeeping is you have to stop war beforehand. You know, like if you if you talk. Yeah. I remember having a really, we'll end here. I a really discu- interesting discussion in late 1996. I am sitting in a small little village, John, called Zhivogoshka, and mm-hmm. is down the Dalmatian coast, very close to the border of Bosnia. Right. And I'm with a friend of mine called Amra Kevich. And if you know about that side of the world, the first name Amra signals that you have some Muslim in your family. It's a Muslim name. Yeah. And Amra's father was a Muslim, and her mother, Milka Kevich, was a Croatian Catholic. And we're sitting in their house, and I am their guest... And it's a year after the Dayton Accord. So it's a year after the peace signed in Bosnia. And I'm talking to Milka. And Amra's dad had worked for the Yugoslavian, like everybody worked for the Yugoslavian government at a certain stage, but was a Muslim from Bosnia. And Amra's dad and Milka married in the 1950s when basically everybody was thrown together after the Second Mm. World War. It didn't matter. They were all socialists together. And we were having a chat about the Bosnian War, about the Serbs and the Muslims and the Croats and the atrocities and things that were done. And her family were from Mostar, and Mostar is that divided half-Muslim, half It's Catholic. an amazing
3: bridge, isn't it? Exactly. That's the yeah. Most.
0: Most is a bridge in, 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 in Serb oh, okay. Croats. Okay, okay, so okay. Mostar, right? And her cousin arrived in later that night and it was really very, very poignant and very dark because it was very clear that something pretty awful had happened to this woman. And mm. I was maybe you know in my twenties, so maybe the, she was in her forties. Right. So there was a lot of talk, and it was it did, did the whole, the atmosphere of the of the of the chat changed dramatically when she came. She'd lost her house, and she'd lost lots of stuff in the war, uh, and it was clear that worse had happened to her, but this wasn't being said. And then Milka, the mum, who at that stage was well in her seventies said, you know, David, you talk about the Serbs, you talk about what was done to us, you talk about our family being divided, the fact that my husband was a Muslim, the fact that I was ostracized in Croatia because of Amra's name, she's a Muslim, the fact that yeah. Amra finds it difficult to get a job now because Amra signifies you're not a Serb, you're not a Croat, you're a Muslim, etc. She said, but I reserve most hate for the blue helmets, for the United Nations. And I said, wow.
3: Really? And I said,
0: that's interesting. She goes, yeah, they were the real fucking cowards here. And she, she said, their road, right? So that there's the main road's going from Dalmatia down to Bosnia. She said every day it was full of UN trucks, UN so-called peacekeepers, UN so-called aid, UN so-called food distribution. She said yeah. every single day they made legitimate the atrocities that were happening under their nose. And every single day we implored them to fight on our behalf, not on behalf of Croats or on behalf of Muslims, but on behalf of people who were being terrorized.
3: Yeah, yeah. And every
0: single day they did nothing. And she said, these were the real cowards. Because had they stood up to the Serbs, like in, for example, uh, Srebrenica, had the Dutch battalion stood up and said, look, we're going to fight here.
3: Yeah, but there wasn't their their remit to do that, though.
0: But that's the whole point she was saying. That's a bullshit idea. You know, you come into our country, you say you're going to protect us, you do fuck all, and then you say it's not our remit. And she's saying, well, give us the guns. right? Give us the ability to defend yeah. ourselves. And it was really interesting to get that perception because we have this hagiography view of the United Nations and peacekeeping. But she was saying, in reality, now this is just her view. Yes. In reality, the United Nations facilitated and made legitimate the terrorization of the local community. And she said, I'll never forget that. And I thought, I was just sitting there going.
3: That's amazing. Wow. Yeah, and this yeah, is a that's woman
0: that's amazing. There was a woman in her 70s who'd seen everything.
3: Yeah. I actually, just on that, I actually saw The Siege of Jadaville on Great. Netflix the other night. It's yeah, a brilliant yeah. story. But in that case, the Irish UN force engaged in battle and a pretty serious battle in that.
0: They absolutely did. And you know, my, my, my recently passed away uncle, Tommy Dunn, was part of that. Oh, was he? Yeah. Mad stuff. Anyway. Wow. Time to go. We'll talk to you next week. Listen, if ads give you a pain in the nads or the nadets, we're delighted to announce that we have a new subscription service on Apple, ad-free, two clicks, you're away. And it's all for the price of a pint, Mac. I know. Check it out on the Dave McWilliams podcast.
2: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen,